Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7, a short passage, one that honestly demands humility, which is why we've been thinking about this already in the service. And I would encourage you, again, being reminded of the the wisdom and the beauty of the Holy Spirit, that though this was written a couple thousand years ago, and Matthew wrote it with a specific audience in mind, specifically Jews, the Spirit wrote it with them in mind, but also with us in mind today, and me in mind all week as I've been meditating on this, and even your homes as you talk about this later In the week, this is God's word for you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge We don't like to listen to passages like this, or even better yet, we like to listen to passages like this as we think about others who do this and struggle with it. And we ask, O Lord, that instead you would give us the ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know as a youth pastor, before coming here, Nikki and I actually married when I was a youth pastor and enjoyed youth ministry. One of my favorite moments, I even told this story just this week to some friends, was shortly after Nikki and I were married. It was a large church. The youth ministry was large. Um, Had a whole bunch of youth in my office sitting there talking. We're hanging out, just causing trouble, being obnoxious. We're prone to do, certainly in my nature. Nikki comes into my office, and uh, if you've known her a long time, you know she hasn't aged a day since we married, and sat in my lap, as a young wife is supposed to do. In fact, wives, I encourage you, sit in your husband's lap. It's a good thing. One of the moms walks by at a big plate glass window in my office, looks into my office and sees the youth pastor, an office full of kids, and one of his kids sitting in his lap. At least that's how she's perceived it. She didn't recognize Nikki. Nikki looked like she was about 16, just like today. And mom comes into my office breathing fire. I mean, she's getting ready to have my hide. 
right? Comes into the office, the door burst open, finger raised, getting ready to just let me have it. The Lord's mercy, her daughter was one of the kids in the room. I don't know how clever that little girl was, but she figured out what was about to happen in the split second from when the door flew open and interrupted her mother before she could say a word and said, Mom, have you met Michael's new wife, Nikki? And you could see Mom like this just moment of just pure panic. Finger raised. It's nice to meet you, you know, trying to recover. There's no recovery from that, right? All of us know what's about to happen. Her face is still red, I'm sure. It was a beautiful moment. I loved it. I laughed about it for 16 years. (laughs) Obviously, I'm laughing about it today. One of those great moments, though, because interestingly, what was the mom's issue? Was the mom responding incorrectly? No, actually. The youth pastor has a high school girl sitting on his lap. There's a massive problem. Should mom come in screaming? Yes, that's the correct answer. Mom should come in screaming, and then she should contact the leadership of the church. Man should probably be fired by the end of the day. Not a good idea. Interestingly, the problem was not mom's response. In fact, mom was responding the way I would want her to respond. It was a holy response. She was about to tear me to pieces, and that was the right thing for her to do. What was mom's problem? Well, obviously, you know, she didn't have all the information. She's responding correctly to a situation that she's perceived incorrectly. She's giving the right response to the wrong problem. And if there's not a summary of most human responses, I don't know what is better than that one. <laughs> right response to the wrong problem. For those of you that are married and have been for Many years, we have some in the room, praise God, five decades. How many times has that been the case? Right response to the wrong problem. We have to sit and talk and figure out, solve, what is the problem that we're actually trying to fix? How do we get on the same page to understand what we're supposed to be correcting The interesting thing in, I guess, now two decades of marriage counseling and uh, counseling just life in general, it's intriguing. We spend almost all of our energy trying to figure out the responses and very little energy ever figuring out what the problems are. In fact, actually, most interpersonal conflict, when they come into the room, it's a matter of person A responded this way. And person B thinks they should have responded that way. And it's all about an argument about the response. And interestingly, never an argument about the problem. Jesus here in chapter 7 is getting at the heart of the issue. He's not dealing with a response side of it. It's not, this is when you should yell at somebody, this is when you shouldn't yell at somebody. It's none of those things. He's cutting to the heart of the matter and saying, this is how you are supposed to think about the complexities of your world. 
This is the condition of your heart, or at least what it's supposed to be. Now again, recognizing where we are in Jesus' sermon, it's a lengthy sermon. It's here recorded in multiple chapters. It's beautiful. It's packed with an immense amount of content. Uh, Thus far, he's already laid out for us fairly clearly the challenge to obey God's law with the clear answer, you can't do it perfectly. Even laying out how the difference between sins of the hands and sins of the heart. We love to act like we're okay because we can manage sins of the hands. I haven't murdered anyone this week. It's a sin of the hands. I can control that, but a a sin of the heart. (laughs) Well, have I been irrationally angry with somebody this week? We'll not have that conversation because perhaps I have 15 or 16 times. He's already laid out that foundational principle. You can't keep the law perfectly in order to challenge us to say, well, who is the one who can? And to present to us this need for forgiveness, to present to us this need for the gospel, the good news that Jesus forgives sins freely for us, costing him everything. We've already sung that. You who think of sin but lightly, don't think it's a big deal. It's not actually that evil. Look at the cost. It cost the Son of God his life. And framing it out so that we have to think about sin and acknowledge that we do it, that we all are not perfect creatures, no one in this room is, that sin is a problem, it then challenges us to submit before the one who can handle sin. And then live accordingly. And that's where we are in this sermon so far now is Jesus is laying out how his kingdom is supposed to look, what it's supposed to feel like, what's the behavior supposed to be like, how are our hearts supposed to work inside the kingdom of God? Do I get to live any way that I want to? Do I get to do anything that I want to? Am I allowed to create my own happy little kingdom and say, this is what Jesus' world's supposed to be like? Short answer, no. He's the king. He determines the rules. And interestingly, even so, here in chapter 6, he's been so kind to us as to say, look, uh, I'm setting the rules, but I'm even so generous that I'm going to reward you every time you do them. Every time. Just for following the basic rules. Every time you do basic obedience, God blesses. And how marvelously generous he is. Until we get to chapter 7. And I don't like this chapter. This is the one that hurts my feelings. It upsets me. It bothers me because I don't like what Jesus says. He begins in verse 1 and saying, judge not that you will not be judged. Now, again, in the postmodern world, we love this. This is perhaps one of the verses that is most quoted from the Bible in the kind of civic sphere. sphere, uh, And it's perhaps the single most misquoted verse in the Bible. Uh, Maybe I know the plans I have for you. That one's probably worse misquoted, but that's a different story. Judge not that you will not be judged. What what does Jesus mean? Well, it it doesn't mean that we're supposed to, the second we become Christians, turn our brains off. The second that you come to know the Lord Jesus and you begin to believe the Bible, the first thing you have to do is turn your brain off. No critical thinking. Now, certainly there are 
Uh, new atheists and Hitchens and others like that, Richard Dawkins, that have challenged the church and said, uh, this is what the church has done for thousands of years, is turn their brains off. And perhaps maybe some Christians have. That's not what Jesus commands. It's certainly not what, uh, the way that this passage is used in the kind of modern cultural moment when it says, judge not. People then apply that to say, well, that means you can't make any judgments about anybody at all. You're not allowed to say this is bad or that is bad. You're not allowed to say that lifestyle is sinful or this lifestyle is sinful. You're not allowed to say this behavior is good and that behavior is evil. That's the way this passage is used in the kind of civic or civil sphere. That's not what Jesus means. And interestingly, how do we know that? Michael, show your proof. Show me your work, as your math teacher used to say. Well, short answer, verse 6. Literally in the same passage. Jesus gives an analogy, do not give dogs what is holy. He's already making a judgment about different categories of people. Calling some of them dogs. And not dogs the way that we have them today where they're these, you know, handsome, well-groomed, multi-thousand dollar animals that are adorable, fluffy little things that aren't really dogs anymore. Like the one that lives at our house. No, back then they were, they were wild animals and they were unbelievably vicious and they fought over the scraps. And if you've ever been to kind of any um, developing world country where they roam the streets, you don't pet the dogs. When you pet dogs, you lose fingers. They're terrible creatures. They're awful. They're very mean-spirited. You don't uh, take what is holy and give it to the dogs. Likewise, remember this is being written to the Jews. Uh, there is no animal less holy than pigs. You don't take pearls and you throw them before pigs. So the pigs, these unholy creatures, can eat them. He's interestingly judging categories of people and labeling them dogs and pigs. So it's certainly not that Jesus is saying that you can't say certain lifestyles are bad or certain lifestyles are good. He's not saying you can't say that this is evil or that is not. So what does he mean? Well, as we've been looking at, he's not dealing with the sin of the hands. He's dealing with the sin of the heart. And what he addresses here with this judge not command is a style or trajectory of interactions with neighbors, friends, or family that is characterized by being overly judgmental. Elsewhere, we would call this in Scripture or in other places, normal conversation, an overly critical spirit. Some of you have been generous to yourselves and you have called it perfectionism. It's just an eye that focuses on the failures of our friends, our families, and ourselves. It's a negative heart. A negative spirit and a negative spirit that is condemning and obsessive. And compulsive at measuring the failures of everyone else. You can see why I'm nervous about this sermon. (laughs) You can see why the entire order of worship was built around this idea of humility. Because instantly, oh, the pastor's talking about an overly critical spirit. I don't have that, but I know who does. Friends, that's the overly critical spirit I'm exactly talking about. 
It's that willingness to say, I don't struggle with this problem, but you do, and you do, and you do. And I know all of you do, but I don't. It's a willingness to turn a blind eye to my own failings and to turn a magnifying glass to yours. Or put differently, it's 2020. You want to look at American culture from March through October, it is an exercise in an overly critical spirit. How can I judge my neighbor and make myself look good? This is what Jesus condemns. He condemns our overly critical spirit. He condemns us for our lack of generosity toward our neighbor. He condemns our lack of forgiveness. He condemns thinking the worst of each other. And it's interesting the contrast that is presented all throughout the scriptures. Uh, My favorite Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, what does kind of true love look like? What does, well, it's always hopeful. (laughs) It's hoping, it's hoping for the best. It's assuming the best. It's entertaining the best. It's dwelling on the best. It's delighting in the best. It's obsessing about the best and the good and the great and the beautiful and the lovely. Not the failings. Not the shortcomings. Not the miseries. Unfortunately, we're too prone to do this. And interestingly, I know I could stand up front and say, you should stop judging others. And you will all sit here and go, I agree, and walk out and immediately judge your neighbor. I know this because it's what I do. So interestingly, I think Jesus knows this as well. And so with this command, he couples reasons to help shape our mind, to to provide the right fuel to get the motor running. (laughs) It takes energy not to be judgmental. It takes the Spirit of God working on the inside. It takes the forgiveness of the Lord Christ, and it takes lots of energy. So he provides it in these reasons. And interestingly, uh, at least one of them is probably not a reason that you've thought about. Reason number one, it's verse number two. Uh, This is uh, the verse that everybody skips over when they preach this passage. I know this because all of the commentators skip over this passage, this verse as well. Everybody's terrified of it because what it actually says is really a difficult thing. Certainly hard for us to think about and it challenges our minds. Look at the reason Jesus gives here. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. The measure you use, so when you're uh, going to you know, conduct a, a bartering or trade or whatever, the, the measures you use, the scales you use, the system you use, that is what will be used to measure you. The critical eye that you apply to your neighbor is the critical eye that will be applied to you. The generous spirit that you apply to your neighbor is the generous spirit that you apply to you. And the interesting thing is many of the commentators say, well, that's how it's going to work in the legal system. If you're overly critical with everybody else, the legal system will become overly critical. No, friends, that's not what that passage is meaning. Interestingly, if it's in this context, who is the one that's going to be judging? 
It's God. And interesting, what is Jesus saying here is the judgment, the attitude that you use to evaluate your friends, your neighbors, your brothers, and your sisters, that attitude that you use in some fashion contributes to the attitude that God uses when he evaluates you. And you can see why everybody's scared of preaching this. And it's largely because they haven't set the framework of what's happening in the passage. Remember, Jesus has already said, you're obligated to obey the law. You're obligated to fulfill the Ten Commandments. You're obligated to live. All humans are. You're obligated to live according to the one who created them. But God, in his infinite generosity, has said, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, every time you obey, you're given a reward. Sometimes that reward is here on earth. Sometimes that reward is given in heaven. Uh, What he's here saying is, and I've mentioned this previous weeks, the Lord has the most spectacular interest rate. Right? You store up treasures in heaven. Why? Because your savings account here pays you squat. God pays infinitely better in the life to come. What Jesus is saying in verse 2 is that you actually, because of God's generosity, have the ability to increase his interest rate. You actually have the ability to increase the treasures that you stored up in heaven and the way they yield back to you by how you interact with your brothers and your sisters. It's part of God's plan. And if you think about it, this is how prayer works. Is God perfectly establishes plans so that whatever he's planned is fulfilled perfectly? Absolutely. Has he also commanded us to pray? Absolutely. But what he's done is, as part of his plan, he's factored in our prayers as the secondary cause. Meaning, the way the Lord likes to change the world is through our prayers. That's what he's planned from all along. He's told us to ask so that he can listen, so that he can respond. It's his design. Likewise, for our rewards in eternity, he has planned for you to behave in a way that it increases his generosity. God gives the most generous interest rate on good deeds, and this further increases it. See, this is interesting because what he's doing is he's, he's undercutting one of the primary mechanisms of judgment in our hearts. When we judge our neighbor, what happens is we look at them and we say, we want them to get what they deserve because they're a bad person. And I can't let them off from my judgment because they failed. They can't get off scot-free. I can't just turn a blind eye to this. I can't just ignore it. They failed and they need to know that. Our flesh says it isn't fair. So when we cultivate, what's the opposite of a judgmental attitude? We'll call it a generous spirit. When we cultivate a generous spirit toward our neighbor, what are we doing? We're acknowledging that God will be the one who rights all wrongs. It's not your job to point out everybody's failings. That's God's job. It's not your job to evaluate everybody's shortcomings. That's God's job. 
It's not your job to be the one who is their Holy Spirit, prompting their conscience at every second turn, showing every mistake they made, highlighting every failure of judgment, every mismeasured uh, attempt at anything. That's God's job. That's not your job. When you obsess about their failings, about their shortcomings, what you're doing is trying to usurp the one who is perfect and put yourself in that place. God instead is saying, look, when you interact with your friends, your family, your neighbors, instead show them a generous spirit. Why? Well, because this is one of the ways you store up treasures in heaven. It's one of the ways that you increase your yield in the life to come. Now, again, this is all because of God's generosity. It's you know, all because of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all because God is unbearably kind. When you look at your neighbor and think the best of them, you're storing up treasures in heaven. I'll give you just real quick as application here as we move on. Kind of two different things that you can do along the way to help you with this. Right? Most of the time, a judgmental spirit, two of the things that are fueling it is one, you assume that you understand what they're actually thinking and doing. And interestingly, if you're actually honest, there's always a range. I'll be, this is how I, I've spent years in ministry trying to cultivate this attitude of saying, when I see a, a person do a behavior, what are the various attitudes that could have caused that behavior? What's the best possible reading of their situation? What's the best possible thing they could be doing? What's the best possible reason for them to be doing this thing? You'll be amazed at when you start looking at your friend or your neighbor or your spouse and saying, what's the best possible reason for doing this? There are a lot more options than you would have guessed. Instead of it instantly being a bad thing, there are a lot of good reasons to act the weird ways they act. Not saying they are using the good reasons. I'm saying there are possibilities. The second question I, I love to ask is, what piece of information are they lacking or am I lacking to end up in this negative judgment? All right, maybe their behavior is because they don't know a key piece of information that would change how they act. Maybe my judgment is because I lack a key piece of information about how they act. If I'm willing to kind of cultivate this hopefulness of spirit toward my, my brother, my sister, toward my spouse, or my children, when I'm cultivating this, the Lord is so generous that he uses and promises, look, if you cultivate a generous spirit toward your neighbor, I will cultivate a generous spirit toward you. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, God's generosity is much bigger than yours. So if you can try this much for a generous spirit, he's going to give you this much. I'm happy for that arrangement. His interest rate is the best ever. Interestingly, he gives two other reasons which just very quickly address. These, I think, tend to be a bit more obvious, but uh, ones that we tend to still need to hear. Reason number two is in verse three. Uh, we are, uh, our judgment is compromised because we're unable to properly grade the size of sins. Uh, because we're sinners, our, our judgment is compromised. We can't correctly categorize which is bigger, which is smaller. Look at verse 3. He gives this kind of cartoonish illustration. 
Why do you see the speck? And again, that's really excellent translation. The Greek word there is kind of like the tiniest little particle that you could possibly imagine. A moat or a mite. You know, why do you get this tiny little bit? Why do you see that in your brother's eye and not notice the gigantic tree coming out of your own? And again, it's cartoonish. That to think that you would even be able to glimpse the tiniest little bit of something in somebody else's eye while you have this massive telephone pole sticking out of your own. It's cartoonish, but he's making a brilliant point to say, look, who are you to even think that your judgment is correct? Right? Many of us have, have spent years, decades, cultivating a critical spirit, a, a critical eye toward everybody else. And Jesus is lovingly saying, who are you to think your judgment's even Right? You're a sinner. The standards that you're using to evaluate everybody else is inconsistent at best. You can't judge the size of sins. I love this. This is perhaps one of my favorite points in this regard is you want to know which sins you do the most? Just pay attention to the things that aggravate you throughout the week. The things that make you the angriest throughout the week are almost always the things that you're doing. Now, it may not be that you're doing them with your hands. You might be doing them with your heart. But almost always the things that just set your blood boiling, that you condemn somebody in your heart like, I can't believe that person would do that. They're almost always the things that we do in our heart. My favorite one of this was in seminary. My roommate and I were driving somewhere uh, in, uh, up near kind of Sharon Road. And uh, sun had set, and we come out of the restaurant, hopped in the car, go driving through the uh, parking lot. We were driving probably a, a touch more quickly in the parking lot than we possibly should. And this car comes whipping around the corner with their lights off and almost a head-on collision right there in the parking lot. And, of course, what happens? All sorts of judgment comes out of our mouth. Oh, look at that car. They're, they're driving way too fast in the parking lot. Don't even have their lights on. It's after dark. And that was about the point we noticed our lights were off. And that we were driving too quickly in the parking lot. And everything that we had just been condemning them for were the things that we ourselves were doing. That's why I say 2020 is an exercise in this. It's a a showcase, a, a perfect museum display of the inability of the human heart to distinguish how big your sins are in comparison to mine. been married long enough now, having children long enough now to see in my own heart how this works, how everybody else in my home, their junk bothers me more than my own junk, right? They can leave the tiniest little bit of their mess around the house. I can leave all of my mess around the house. Theirs will aggravate me more than mine. Why? Because my judgment's compromised, My sin distorts my brain. I can't see your sin perfectly accurately. I can't because my own sin. So it would be wise for us to cultivate a generous spirit toward our neighbor, to showcase kindness, to showcase mercy, to know that God will be the ultimate judge, not me. I don't have to be your Holy Spirit. We have a Holy Spirit for that job. Reason number three is that not only does it distort uh, uh, our ability to see sin, it actually compromises our ability to correct sin. Jesus then takes this cartoonish example and then kind of applies it like a surgeon almost. 
Well, verse 4, how, how can you say to your brother, here, let me perform eye surgery on you? No thanks, I'll pass, friend. You have a giant telephone pole sticking out of your eye. I don't think I want you anywhere near my eyes. I'll pass on that. Thanks. No thank you. I'll skip out. Jesus is acknowledging that as part of this hypocrisy that we are prone to, as part of this pride that we are prone to, uh, what happens is it compromises our ability to actually even correctly deal with our neighbor because our own sin is just so obvious to them and ignored by us. So not only are we having a critical spirit, but then our efforts to resolve this critical problem are failures. Because we're compromised. So what does Jesus say? Verse 5, here's the solution. If you found forgiveness in Jesus Christ, if you have the Spirit of God living within you, worry about your own mess. Using common parlance, stay in your own lane. Deal with yourself. Be generous toward your neighbor. I've been making the point now for months, and I'm going to continue making the point because I believe it to be true, is that when we move into that building, it's not going to make all of our challenges as a church go away. In fact, I suspect that it will compound them. I was talking with an elder even this week. I suspect the next 12 months will be 12 of the most important and 12 of the most difficult months in this church's history. Because we've been in two services now for quite a long time getting ready to go back into one, to go into a new building that's going to function a little bit differently than you're accustomed to. You're going to be hearing about that. One of the things we're working on, we're only going to seat you during the the music. We're not going to let everybody wander up and down the aisle the whole time. We're we're working to, to build the unity of the body. And guess what? It's going to be so easy for me to be so angry with all of you and for you to be so angry with me. That's why I keep pounding this point. Because if we're honest, this body excels at generosity of giving. We've never been short of money. It excels in generosity of friendship. We've never been short of warmth. I suspect some of us are very short in generosity of goodwill toward those who have hurt our feelings to those who have come short of what we think is important, of those who have not measured up to our standards. And the reality is we're about to go in just, Lord willing, a couple of weeks from a a room that is having 50 people in it to a room that's going to have 125 people in it. And your opportunities to be critical will only increase. Jesus has told us we are to be kind and forgiving and only the Spirit can make this work. And for this reason that we are called to confess and to plead with God that he would rework our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our sins. We have fallen far short. More and more and more than we would ever like to admit. And we ask, O Lord, that you would cultivate in us a generosity of spirit toward our neighbor. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.